0: Uh, this morning we're going to be reading in Romans chapter 8 uh, verses 1 to 11 and uh, I'm hoping that I got the slides on the same version that I have that I'm reading this morning because I cleared that up from last time as well so it's uh, starting verse one life through the Spirit therefore is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit, Who gives life sets you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be made fully in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit who lives in you. The reading of God's word. Paul starts off today's passage with a logical argument. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Basically, if you wanna break it down, Christ cannot be condemned, and as such, we cannot be condemned if we are in Christ and Christ is in us. We are inheriting his righteousness, and because of who Christ is and what he did, we have no condemnation on us. And it's extremely important as many believers think that there's still some condemnation on them, like Christ did most of it, but the rest of it is up to me. And if I mess up, then there's some condemnation on me for until I get it right for a period of time. These believers live not under the peace of the freedom of Christ, but under the burden of trying to maintain it. But we see here there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And why? Because as we read in verse two, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So not because anything that you could do or have done or will do, but because of Jesus Christ who sets us free from sin and death. I want to pause here for a moment because there's a logical conclusion that we can make from there not being any condemnation on those who are in Christ. And for all you Sunday School scholars, I know you know what it is, is that there is condemnation on those who are not in Christ. And that's the scary reality that most of us don't think about day to day. We get lost in our busy lives, living for the next minute, hour, week, or year, not even thinking about eternity or the eternity of those around us. And there's family members that we do not share the gospel with because it creates a discomfort. Friends we do not share the gospel with because we risk losing them as friends. Coworkers, neighbors, you're the lady in front of you at the checkout counter, they all need to hear about salvation and the freedom of sin for their eternal souls. And we don't share it with them because it's just easier not to. Yet this verse indicates that they're under condemnation from God if they do not have Christ Jesus in them. There's also a reality, we need to be thinking about Muslims, Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, Jews, and any other friends that are resting their eternal souls on something that is not Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who was born of a virgin, who lived a perfect sinless life, who died for the sin of the world, who rose again, proving he is who he claimed to be. Any faith outside of that puts you under the condemnation of God. And we see in verse 3, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in likeness of a sinful flesh to be a sin offering. When I think of the law as helpless to protect you, um, I'm going to use a hockey analogy here, and I'm sorry if you don't follow hockey, but I do. Um, For anonymity, anonymity? Yeah, we'll use, uh, we'll call him John Sherry. John Sherry, once said <laughs> that uh, these young hockey players, they they come into the league, and they'll go into the corners or uh, into the end, uh, end boards, and they put themselves in a vulnerable position by putting their head down and going straight into the boards. And what it does is it leaves them open for a hit from behind. And uh, so he was always telling people, don't do that. <laughs> go into the boards so that you're in a position where you're not susceptible to that injury. So what the league did instead is they implemented uh, these rules to protect those players. So now there's a major penalty. And for those who don't know, it's a five minute and a game misconduct. So you leave the ice for the whole game, and your team is down for five minutes. Whether or not the other team scores or not, you're down for a player for five minutes. And in the younger levels, I remember when Seth was in, in Atom, uh, they actually had stop signs on the back of the kids' jerseys to remind you, don't hit them into the boards from behind. The only problem with this is if anyone doesn't listen to the rule and they hit you from behind, you still get injured. You can still have a career injury or, or paraplegic or anything like that because the law is ultimately powerless to defend you when it's broken. And I I guess old John Sherry there was right when he said you have to keep your heads up out there. Um, I think you know where I'm going with this, and it's a bit of a stretch, but the law is ultimately powerless to defend us, and we need to be looking up to Jesus to save us. So for friends who are trying to gain salvation by some set of rules or commands, the law is powerless to do anything to save them. And Paul would have been the chief proponent for this because he, if anyone, could understand it. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 9, we read, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, regarding the law of Pharisee, for zeal, persecuting the church, As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. To be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul here considers everything he did and could do as worthless garbage. And while we think on this, if anyone would have appeared to be in good standing, it would have been Paul. But we see that the law was powerless to save even Paul, who would seem best at trying to keep it. I listen to Wretched Radio, as you guys know. I'm I listen to it all the time, and, and often Todd Friel, every Wednesday he goes out and he does these witnessing on, on college campuses and universities, and, and he has his own little spiel where he walks people through the law and sees if they're a good person or not. And Sometimes he'll get a devout um, Muslim or, or Jewish man on there, and, and these these guys will actually go through the laws, and, and Todd will... <laughs> Todd will be like, you've never disobeyed your parents. You've never taken anything, you know? And he, he walks them through it all, and they're like, no, I have never coveted. I've never done this. And and then he gets to, have you ever looked with lust? And um, and then sometimes they'll be like, nope. <laughs> and he says, well, now I know you're a liar too. <laughs> so it seems like no matter what we try to do, like even if we were able to keep almost all the commandments it's like it's in our human nature to lie to lust and honestly if most of these guys were honest i think they had done most of the other things as well the law does not empower us to keep the commandments it simply points out how weak we are in the flesh to do it as we move on to the end of verse 3 into verse 4 it reads and so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be met fully in us Who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit and this to me is one of the best parts of the passage it concludes that the righteous requirement of the law that is that we should actually keep the law which we are all unable to do can be fully met in us not by our own efforts but because of jesus christ however it seems to add a requirement that we keep this righteousness by not living according to the flesh but according to the spirit which doesn't seem to quite work with the flow of what Paul has outlined to this point, that we have uh, freedom through grace in Christ, uh, that we cannot earn our salvation. So what do we do with that? Well, a further study into the ending of this passage seems to indicate that this portion of the text wasn't actually part of the original ancient manuscripts. Hence, it would make sense it doesn't quite seem to fit how it's written here. Some scholars believe it was likely added by a copyist who either made a mistake or thought maybe they could help Paul out by connecting this and transitioning it into verse 5. But however it might be, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater because there is a reality that those who are in Christ do not live by the flesh any longer, not as a requirement of salvation, but as a result of it. So we know that true believers cannot continue to entertain sin in their lives as a habit because we have a new nature. We see in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 and 17, "...so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, and the new is here." So as believers, we should be living as a new creation. And while it's not a requirement of salvation, and maybe it wasn't in those original manuscripts, I would be hard-pressed to find a true believer who would say they could be living in the flesh if Christ is in them and they in Christ. Further to this, as we read on, Romans 8, verses five to six, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. So what does, it have, or what does it look like to have your mind set on what the flesh desires? Well, I don't think you have to look too far into a newspaper or magazine article, watch a TV advertisement or two, or flip through Instagram or Facebook. You will see what the flesh desires. The flesh desires for sexual immorality, lust, hate, division, coveting, murder of the unborn, disobedience to authority, focus on self and selfish gain, and constant screams for the approval of others. It is the way of the world and has done far more than just creep into the church. It's almost like the church is embracing it in many ways. And when the church does not speak out against evil, does not care for the lost, and is more worried about what the world thinks of us than what the Great Commission is, then it is living according to the flesh. And there's a stark warning given in Galatians 5, 19 to 20. It says, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage. selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I had actually built my earlier list that I said um, about what I see on TV and social media before I looked up this passage. And it's a sad warning how closely the two are aligned. Um, The counter to this is the end of verse five, it says, But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Well, what does the Spirit desire? The Spirit desires to produce good fruit. What we see the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 23 where it says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And when the fruits of the Spirit are evident in your life, people notice when there's just something different about you, they can't put their finger on, but they can just tell there's something about you that's special. Here's a newsflash. The special thing has nothing to do with you. It's the Spirit of God coming out in you that reveals what's going on. And as many of you know, um, there was a low point in my life where I found myself separated from my wife, trying to raise two boys, balancing work and life and everything else and it's at those times when you find yourself deepest in the word. You're, you're looking for scripture, for answers. You're praying and you're spending time with God. And, and that's when I felt the closest to him. Anyway, there's this one time I went to the grocery store and I was there with my boys. And I don't know what we were doing, but we're going through the checkout lineup. And there's a guy in front of us. And his name is James Gladys. And many of you know him, but I didn't. I didn't know this guy. I'd never met him. And, uh, and I went to the Baptist church, and he went to the MB, so you know we never talked. And, and I'm just in the lineup behind him, and I'm talking to my kids, and I don't even think, I don't know what I was saying, but anyway, he just turned back to me, and he's like, pardon me, do you mind me asking, are you a believer? And I said, uh, yeah, I am, and, and we hit it off, and we started talking like old friends who hadn't seen each other for 20 years. Now, I ask you, is there anything special about me? Nope, not a thing. But when the Spirit of God is on you and you're living in accordance with the Spirit, it will flow out of you. It will be evident to others around you, but when you live according to the flesh, you stifle the Holy Spirit and you will look very much like the world around you. As we move on to the passage from verses 7 to 9, we read, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. When I think of these words, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. I think of so many of my encounters I've had with people who know I am a believer before I even enter the conversation with them. It's like they have their heels dug in before we even start. I used to work for this company, and and uh, I, I worked with this guy. He actually worked in Grand Prairie, and I worked in Fort Saint John, so we didn't see each other that often. But at every quarter, we'd have these these business meetings where we'd go over important things like safety and profits, whatever. And um, and there were breaks throughout the day where you you know you go you know use a washroom or go get a coffee and that kind of thing. And I remember I was walking over to the coffee station, and um, And he was, it was almost like he was there waiting for me, you know, and as I was walking up to get a coffee, he's like, hey, are you all ready for Easter? You know, when uh, Jesus Christ came to take away the sins of the world? And I was like, wow, yeah, I I am. And he's like, I, you know, I, I didn't know he was dug in like that already. And he immediately follows it up by one teenager gets pregnant and I have to hear about it for the rest of my life. And uh, so, yeah, I knew where we were at there. So I, of course, I didn't back down. So I I just said, you know, there's more ancient manuscripts outlining the prophecies of, of his life and his fulfillment of those prophecies than any other text. And he just said, liars copying lies. It doesn't prove a thing. That's hostility to God. And I was in a spiritual battle before I could even put my boots on. And I believe that this is the current state of most of the conflict we see in the anger and hostility against anything godly. We read in Ephesians six twelve: for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So when you see the hostility towards Christian values, attacks against things we, we used to know and assume, like a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl, anything remotely to the historical right, you have to remind yourself that you're not in a battle with these, with these individuals and that there's a spiritual battle going on against anything in alignment with the image of God. So when you ask yourself, how in the world can a gay pride group walk alongside an Islamophobia group. Well, if they're both aligned against the image of God, then they have a united goal. And when an overweight male can go win a women's beauty pageant and you ask, where are the women's rights groups in opposition? Well, if they're both promoting something against God, they have their alignment. And in the same way that two Christians who have never met can instantly share a bond that goes beyond understanding, Two non-believers governed by the flesh share a bond that they're united in their hostility to God. They cannot submit to God's will. Their minds are against it, and they cannot get in alignment without the intervention and calling of the Holy Spirit. One commentary I read said it like this. Carnal men are subject to the law's sentence of condemnation, but not to its precepts. By obedience to them, there may be an external... Which is a servile obedience to it, but not a free, voluntary, internal one, and much less a perfect one. The carnal mind is so far from an obedient subjection to the law, and is so far off from the law, that it hates and despises it, thwarts and contradicts it in every instance, and as, uh, and as much as it, it lies, makes it void which fully proves the enmity of the carnal mind against God. For hereby his being is denied, his sovereignty disputed, his image defaced, his government withdrawn from him, and these persons are declared and declare themselves enemies to him. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. So when you see the attacks in your everyday life on the very things of God, the image bearers of God, and the values of God, you should not be surprised. You should be prepared, informed, aware of it, but not surprised by it. I think a lot of our surprise comes from the speed of which it has happened. Because uh, I grew up in the 90s. And in the 80s and 90s, groups like Focus on the Family and other uh, groups like that worked really hard for Christian rights, uh, individual rights, family rights. And since then, we've seen not only all of those things that they worked so hard for overturned, but now a lot of those things, like marriages between one man and one woman, that's hate speech, and you can't even say it anymore. And I'm thinking about it, I think my generation was kind of that last generation that we still got to receive all of the rewards for the efforts and work that the previous generation had done, but we didn't do any of the legwork to keep it. Youth groups were more like social clubs. Um, parents quit working to ensure their kids were restricted to the same values that they were. New Age teachings, prosperity gospels, and purpose-driven ideas, instead of heart transformations, perforated all denominations of the church. And the fallout of this has been an unbelievably fast deterioration of Western society. We embraced the world and had next to no persecution for hanging our legs on both sides of the fence. And you'd think we'd learn as history repeats itself. We read this in Judges chapter 2. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. And after a whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up, who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them up to the hands of the razors who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of the enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. And it's like we read this and we go, how can they not see that being obedient to God's law provides life, health, and prosperity? And then immediately we start down the same path as the Israelites did. And I realize we do not live in a theocracy, but the parallels can clearly be drawn. In one generation, they went from victory to not even knowing God, nor what he had done. And I'm sad to say, I think I'm living in that generation. Just last week, my wife had to remind me that when our kids were young, there's no way I would have let something like a sports activity interfere with coming to church on Sunday. Because that was something that I had always grown up with. It was the importance of the congregating of the saints together, where we worship together and we hear the message and you get renewed And uh, literally last week, I'm contemplating how we're going to work online church so that one of my kids can attend uh, a volleyball practice. I'm like, have I become so enamored with the praise of the world that I won't even speak up about a conflict like this? Like, it's just a few weeks ago, Andrew was talking about how at the start of the school year, he goes into the school and talks to the teachers and tells them that Ruby and Lucy will not be part of woke theology And here I am, I can't even talk to the coach about a conflict. I was ashamed of myself. I was like, do I want my kids to be the next generation that does not remember God? We are not to be in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the spirit. As we conclude this passage, it offers some hope. It says in verse 10, But if Christ is in you, then even though the body is subject to death because of sin, The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. It's so easy to see all the decay and the values we grew up and the deterioration of society forget, this isn't what we live for. This isn't the world that we want to see for eternity. There is so much brokenness and heartache. We live in the West where we have enjoyed freedom, security, and abundance for so long that we can hardly start to think of anything but what the world can do for us. In reality, most of the world does not live by our standards. Most of the world does not have our abundance. There are people starving, children abandoned by parents, families destroyed by war, governments impoverishing their people right now through corruption, And the list goes on and on and this is happening right now. And they are calling out to God for relief, for Christ's return, for justice. To them, the hope that there will be a future where our spirit is raised to life after this world gives peace, it gives meaning to pain and suffering. If this is all there is, hope for eternity is what gives life meaning, it's what gives life purpose. It is what gives us peace that passes understanding, even when in the light of everything going on around you is terrible. And I believe a passage like this reminds us that there is evil and enmity towards God and his people. It also provides such a promise that we do not have to be dejected, demoralized, and deflated over the decline of society and over the world our children are inheriting, but instead reinforce the hope that this is not all there is when you feel like it's being ripped from beneath you, remember, we are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the spirit. And Christ is alive. And because of this, we have real hope and a real future. If Jesus rose again, then he will for certain raise us up and we will get to spend eternity with him. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23, we read, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. His first fruits of those who are the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for since death came through a man the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man for as in all as in adam all die so in christ all will be made alive but each in turn christ the first fruits then when he comes those who belong to him we have a promise that christ will come back he will resurrect those who have already gone before there will be a new heaven and a new earth without death pain Suffering, sadness, it will be perfect. We will need to rem- oh, sorry, we need to remind ourselves that we are not believers because it provides a better life. Not because we want to instill good values in our kids, not because we want to preserve Western society as best we can. Yes, we're allowed to desire those things, and we should want the best world. But that's not why we believe and why we should be sharing what we believe. It is because we have a hope for eternity, and we want to give hope to others as well. And with this in the forefront of our mind, with the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, we should be able to live by the Spirit and not the desires of the flesh. As I close, I want to remind you, the grace of Christ is a new nature and the soul is alive to God and has begun its holy happiness, which will last forever. The righteousness of Christ in us saves our soul from death, which is much better than the flesh. So it's our duty to walk, not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. It seems so clear that if any habitually live according to the lust of the flesh, they will certainly perish in their sins, whatever they profess. And what can a worldly life present? Anything worth comparing to the noble prize of our high calling? We should instead, led by the Spirit, work harder and harder to kill our fleshly desires. The regeneration of our souls by the Holy Spirit brings a new life, not by anything we could do on our own, but as sons and daughters of God. We now have the Spirit working in us to free us from bondage. The Israelites were under this bondage, but for us, the spirit of adoption was plentifully poured out. Unbelievers in other religions are also under bondage. They do not have peace, but we who have been sanctified have God's Spirit witnessing with our spirit, we have peace in our soul. So even though we may be witnessing the deterioration of society and maybe even become societal outcasts, even to the point of martyrdom, in Christ we will be victorious in the end. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for what you've done for us. We thank you that as we come out of this Christmas season, we're reminded that uh, you came in human flesh, even though you didn't have to while we were still shaking our fists at you. You came and you lived a perfect life, and then you died for our sins. You were raised again, and you gave us hope for a future. And we pray, Lord, that we would keep this in the forefront of our minds, that as we go from here, and we immediately are enter back into the world, and everything that it has, uh, that we would not be living according to the flesh, but we would be living according to the Spirit, what you want us to do, how you want us to live, how you want us to show your example to others so that others could see your light living through us. And uh, it would be so apparent they would have to ask, are you a believer? Lord, I pray that um, you would be with us as we go from here and, and that your Holy Spirit would be leading and convicting us as we go. We thank you, Lord, for this, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.